Hi, I'm John Rogers. I created the show Leverage and Rogue Transformers, and you're listening to Genretainment. This is Jean Entertainment, and we're your hosts, Marks and Julie. On today's episode, we're chatting with award-winning director Dan Adias. Dan has worked as a director since 1984. Good year. <laughs> uh, directing episodes for The Wire, The Sopranos, Homeland, Alias, New Northern Exposure, Penny Dreadful, City of Angels, Awesome, The Boys, Boys. Yeah, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Ooh, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and more. He directed one of the first horror films I ever watched, Stephen King's Silver Bullet. Huh. We talk about many of those projects in his new nonfiction book, <clears throat> Directing Great Television Inside TV's New Golden Age. We had a fun time chatting with him about how he started his career at first in acting and then found his way into directing. He shares some great stories from set and tips from his book. Now, before we get in this uh, episode's interview, I do want to apologize. We've been on hiatus so long. Yeah. It's been a blur for us between some uh, illness in the family and many projects back to back. Yeah, some of that's on me. Um, speaking of projects, Cabot Crossing Publishing published its first book. Yep, that's us. Yes, that, but in case you didn't know, Cabot Crossing Publishing is us. Um, so our first book, Dragons of a Different Tale, 17 Unusual Dragon Tales, is out in stores. Ooh. Yeah, so here's the description. It's 18 award-winning veteran and emerging authors bring you 17 unique dragon tales that defy tradition. Winged serpents as large as continents, as well as those tiny enough to perch on the fingertip of a young girl. Dragons who inhabit the Wild West, Victorian London, Brooklyn, and a post-apocalyptic Earth. Scaly beasts who fight in the boxing ring, celebrate Christmas, and conquer the vast void of outer space. There are rock stars who meddle with dragon magic, clever and conniving shapeshifters, and powerfully exotic hybrids. Science fiction, urban fantasy, mystery, western, epic fantasy, YA fantasy, no matter the setting or the genre, here be dragons. And just in case you did, you know you were doing the math, it's 17 tales, but 18 authors, because Marx and I did our first co-writing, I don't know, excapade. <laughs> <laughs> that, we've, that we've ever done. Rather than him writing and, and, and me editing, we actually co-wrote our short story, and that is The Wild West, which I am of which I am very, very proud. Yeah. A Wild so. Beast of the West is the yes, name of Yes, A it. Wild Beast of the West is the name, and I'm really, it's really proud of it. And The Wild West with dragons. Yes, so you got cowboys and cowgirls riding dragons and shooting six guns. What else do you need? Yeah. <laughs> Um, super proud of the book. Not only does it have the stories, but also behind-the-scenes stories from the authors, which is something a little mm-hmm. different for anthologies. And you can find links to all your favorite online stores to buy the book at books2read.com, Dragon's Tale. And that's books, the number two, read.com, slash Dragon's Tale. So the two is the number. Now we also have my urban fantasy series, Obsidian Monsters. It's currently coming out on Kindavella. Yes. Julie's doing a great job editing those episodes. A little behind at the moment, but getting there again. Anyway, these things in real life stuff have made the podcast tough to do lately, but we're starting to get caught up. with Some excellent episodes coming, 
including our traditional end-of-the-year crossover episode with SFP Now, yes. talking about the best movies, TV series, and more from 2021. We also have an SFP Now episode uh, currently on their feed with uh, with us on there with some of the other authors of the anthology, too. Yes, that that's true, yeah. And in January, we'll also have episodes with some of the authors from the anthology on mm-hmm. here. So, yeah, lots so of- we just had a bit of a bottleneck. The bottleneck has opened. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of work to do an anthology overseas. <laughs> it was a little more than we thought. <laughs> publish. I learned a lot of new stuff. <laughs> to be fair, it was a little more work than we'd anticipated. <laughs> <laughs> so we can't wait to share all of that. But right now, let's get to our interview with Dan Adius. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much. Delighted to be here. All right. Well, before we discuss your new book, Directing Great Television Inside TV's New Go Age, let's talk about your origin story and what started you down this path that led to directing TV, I guess, since the 1980s, right? That's right. The good days. (laughs) The 80s and the 90s, the good old days. (laughs) I was kind of at loose ends when I graduated college as an English major and I'd gotten into law school, didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I gravitated towards doing some acting workshops, and that led to, for about three years, I studied to be an actor, was in some plays, really liked it, and wound up in film school, kind of in a circuitous way, and I had to make a film as part of that, Mm -hmm. and that was kind of an epiphany, because uh, I I realized I'm much better suited to be behind the camera, because I didn't really get in my own way the way I would as an actor, very self-conscious as an actor. It was great when I happened to be just in the right mood for the part. (laughs) It's hard for me to kind of, uh, I always, I had a pretty good understanding of what a scene required, but, you know, bending my, you know, twisting my insides around to fit the moment was more difficult for me. And I made a short film and that was kind of an epiphany. Okay, this is what I want to do. And then I was uh, transferred into an MFA program. And I saw a lot of career film students there who just were kind of big fish in a small pond. And I realized, well, I don't want to hang around here forever. And I hadn't didn't have a thesis film that I wanted to make yet. So I got into something called the Assistant Directors Training Program, which the Directors Guild of America operates. And I figured I'd apprentice myself to good directors on my way to becoming a feature film director. That was my wish. This was in the 70s, and that was like independent films were were fantastic then. That was like the height probably of the, you know, indie mm-hmm. filmmaking era, I think. And uh, and I worked as an assistant director, trainee assistant director, and then two years as a second AD on some really great films. I was a second AD on E.T. Oh. I was a trainee assistant director on Airplane. So I, I worked on a bunch of films, and when I had gotten in enough days, this was this covered about three or four years of trainee and second AD. I elected, rather than trying to become a first AD, to go back to film school, make a short film, and come out as a director. And I did that, and the film did really well on the festival circuit, and I got an agent. And I wound up getting hired to do a feature film. My first directing job was something called Stephen King's Silver Bullet. It came out in 1985. Wow. And I thought, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to make features because at that time, TV was kind of the poor relation. You know, it wasn't really a terribly creative uh, way to uh, direct. Mm -hmm. And after I'd done that film, I got offered more horror films, but that's not my my greatest, uh, that's not, I don't, I don't really feel temperamentally drawn that much to horror, although I've done some TV shows which, which touch on it. 
But I became very choosy and very selective to the point where I turned down everything that was offered to me and the things I wanted to do weren't offered to me. Yeah. So I wound up getting offered some TV work. And uh, I thought it would be kind of like, okay, well, it'll be good practice for, until I get that, you know, my, my next feature. I was forced, I got, you know, I got a lot of work in television. I realized, you know, you don't learn how to be a director by not directing. So I right. kind of regarded TV as like, okay, this will be training, training ground. And I worked on a lot of early shows. Beverly Hills 90210 came around and I did a ton of those. And that's where I really kind of cut my teeth on the whole thing. And, uh, and then I happened to be in the right place at the right time. I did a lot of directing work and then kind of the golden age of television started. And I was around for uh, The Sopranos, which started, and I was offered the, the second episode of The Sopranos. Wow. Uh, the pilot was made, yeah, the pilot was made like six months before they went to series. And uh, because I had done a show called Northern Exposure, which I oh, love. I love Northern Exposure. Oh, I'm so sure that. That was a great one. That, that was, was a- one of the great TV shows. Yeah. Yeah. You also, fact, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to sidetrack you, but I love Northern yeah. Exposure, and you also directed uh, Young Writers, is one of my favorite TV shows. That was a good one, too. Yeah, there were a lot of fun shows. I don't, you know, I consider certainly Northern Exposure, you know. It's just one of those about, great classics. Oh, yeah. It was so much fun and so inventive, and and I, you know, I consider it part of, if we're going to call it Golden Age of Television, I I, I hope that would be included yes, in it. Yes, thank you. Really, yeah. It's probably, though, a little before people, you know, what people consider that. Because I think The Sopranos is probably kind of the start of that thing. But, but it was just so ahead of its time in you know, so many ways, <laughs> including that one. <laughs> smart, funny, and indirect. And, yeah, it was, like, nuanced and subtle and sophisticated the way, you know, the great shows are now. And, it, and what's unusual about it is it was a network show. It was a network hit, mm-hmm. which means it had to have attracted, you know, millions of viewers which so many of the cable shows don't have to do because they're kind of niche and they kind of don't need that as many viewers to be considered a success but anyway that was kind of a long-winded explanation no it's great but what was great was that i i you know while i still was interested in kind of i had some development deals and some features and i still was very choosy about it but tv just at a certain point, it just hit me like I'm getting better material on these things. It's like it's more fun to direct shows that are this smart and nuanced and intelligent than some, you know, sequel to a sequel to a sequel or some tentpole mm-hmm. kind of thing. And mm-hmm. and you guys probably are well aware that, you know, indie films have kind of fallen, you know, the number of them that get produced. That's temperamentally I'm kind of drawn to them, the kind of smart character. Hey, you're talking thing. to a huge Billy Jack fan. <laughs> so I totally get it. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. And uh, so anyway, TV just became a place where I just love to uh, love to work. It also, I love how the, the turnaround is so much quicker than a feature. You, you do something and, and it airs within a few months. Uh, now that's kind of changing with the I guess with some of the the new outlets and everything, but you know, people talk about it. Millions of people see it, and you move on to something else. That really suits me temperamentally. Mm-hmm. That must be pretty interesting, though. I mean, what is that like to go into? There's a TV show, and it's kind of up and going, and then how does that? Because there's different directors, and yet there's such consistency with how 
how these are done, but at the same time, that consistency, there are sometimes like moments of brilliance. I know I've, I've watched far too much television and there are times that even going back, I'm watching old, like, you know, Westerns from the fifties and sixties. And I'll go, yes, this is written by so-and-so and directed by so-and-so. I always like theirs, you know? Um, so how is that whenever you have to kind of just slide into something that's already up and going like this kind of well-oiled machine yet trying to make it your own? Well, you, you put your finger right on what the challenge is in directing series television. It's, uh, it's so odd because, you know, when you're the director, you're kind of the one in command. And so you're coming into a well-oiled machine and you're there for two or three weeks and you're the one essentially giving orders and people are expected to to follow you. Uh, and it's a weird thing. I mean, you first have to develop trust and you have to be a, a credible, you have to take, you have to take responsibility. But I mean, there's so many different um aspects to this question you raised. I mean, the, the first thing I guess I, I would want to say is that whenever I, I get a show, I feel a tremendous responsibility to really acquaint myself with as, as much of it as I possibly can. It's history. Watch as many episodes as I can. Because when you enter a show, every show has its own sensibility, its own visual language, its own way of seeing things, its own tone, its own pace. You know, you really need to uh, absorb all that I mean, I kind of think of it as you, there's a language to learn and you have to learn it so that you can then speak it in your own voice. Mm -hmm. That's kind of one way of thinking about it. If you're just into mimicry, it's going to be kind of generalized hack work. Mm -hmm. And that happens from time to time. But the really great episodes are done by is when, when a director comes in, really immerses him or herself in all of these different aspects and then brings themselves to it. And then tells the story because as the director, even on a series, even on an episode, the director is certainly so long as he or she is, you know, on the set directing is the storyteller is the only one making those moment to moment discriminations and assessments about how the story is getting told and where to direct the audience's attention and how to adjust a performance to keep it on point so that the story is furthered in subtle ways that you know, a viewer may not even be kind I mean, there's always a million ways you can play any scene or any, any, you know, there's, there's all kinds of realistic ways to play scenes, but unless it's feeding the overall, uh, some sort of vision of a story, it's like when you're telling a story to kids around a campfire or whatever else, you know, it's like you have to monitor exactly how, are they with me? Are they following me? <laughs> yeah. What do I say next? Those are the kind of questions you ask yourself as director. And, and as far as why it so often seems to work is, you know, on a series, you know, you're not there alone. There's so many consistent elements. You know, of course, there's the writers and the and the show creator and, and they've worked tirelessly and, you know, to, to make each script conform to the overall vision of the show and the story they're telling. And then there's the same director of photography generally sometimes they'll alternate too. but they're the look of the show is going to be similar mm -hmm. and the same. You know, hopefully the actors all all the series regulars are pretty well versed in their characters. Well. Exactly. So there's a lot of elements that are kind of creating the memes, as it were. You know, it's like that are that are going to be consistent. But if you don't, if the director doesn't, so so it, it'll always kind of feel like the show. Mm -hmm. But the ones that really work well, I think, are when 
supervised by the director coming in, making sure all the elements really cohere in a really fresh, fresh way so that discoveries are actually made and and each moment is compelling. You know, you, an audience can understand what's happening, but the degree to which they're involved varies from from director to director because it's how compelling you are as a storyteller. But it's not something if you watch 10 straight episodes of a show, you're, you're still going to feel it's the same show. Yeah. But some are going to affect you more deeply than others. And that's not all at the hands of the director. I don't mean to suggest that. I mean, clearly some scripts are stronger than others and, and all that. But but that's really I, what I regard the director's chief function is to be storyteller. And as far as the actors, that's another really fascinating thing because, yeah, I mean, if you come into season four of a show, you know, the actors are far more familiar with their characters than you are. However, they may not be up with what the nuances of this particular story or this particular episode is. So you as the director have to help them understand what's what's at what's at issue. What are the stakes of this particular moment? What what sort of reaction is going to set up something down the line? It's a uh, collaboration. So, so, yeah, yeah. It, it's the most collaborative arts that I can imagine. And how much time because it is faster paced right so how much time do you normally get to direct in yeah i mean for preparation like familiarizing yourself with the the show and then actually starting to get into the nitty-gritty and then then get then be there yeah what's what's the timeline like the part you get paid for is very small (laughs) (laughs) preparation you know i try to prepare before i ever start as far as what the contract says and what happens is so like for a typical hour of television uh it used to be for networks it would be uh like seven days of prep and eight days to shoot and nowadays with some of the higher end shows the more you know especially some of the you know with the big effects show like a Westworld or something you might shoot 14 days or 15 days wow. even but that's that's unusual but you know, some of the bigger shows I've done, like Homeland or The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel or some other stuff like that, you, you'll you'll get maybe between 10 and 12 days. That's a very high-end show. Most are like in the 7 to 9 or 8 to, eight to 10 day range of shooting. And then before that, you get like 7 days of prep, sometimes 8 days of prep. So it's very, very much more condensed from a feature film. A feature film, you might get 8 weeks of prep and... 10 weeks to shoot. And when you think about it, the screen time is just a little... It's not maybe, that different. It's like double. It's like a two-hour movie versus a one-hour show. And you, yeah. you, so you have so... And then the other thing is you often don't get your script until the day before you the day before you start prepping. Wow. So you might show up with seven or eight days to prepare everything, uh, and you're just seeing the script at the start of that. And Preparing a show is is a lot more complicated than you might think. I mean, some shows are more difficult to prep than others, but, you know, you always have to find, almost always have to find locations. You have to find cast for particular parts. You have to figure out how you're going to shoot it, what special equipment you're going to need. You know, all kinds of things that really get telescoped on a television show compared to a feature film. You know, I hadn't thought about that. Whenever you uh, have some new cast members... Like somebody's just going to be in that one episode. Do you have to watch any auditions, or or how does yeah. that work? Do you- well, that's okay. a key part of uh, one of the most you know significant responsibilities of the director is to have an opinion. I'll say 
of the casting. It's like the director does not is not empowered to say, okay, you're going to play this part and you're going to play this part. That's really the the power in television really resides with the showrunner, the writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the head writer is generally the one who has final say on most creative decisions, but the director does, by contract, have to be consulted on all uh, casting casting questions, and that's as it should be, because the director is the one charged with getting the performance, and the director is the one, again, who has, the, has that kind of subliminal sense of how it's all going to work and has to develop a sense of how he or she will work with that new actor. So casting used to be all, you know, coming into the room and getting to people would read uh, scene and uh, and then you get to work with them and see how you work with them. Of in recent years, though, what's happened is that m- so many auditions are just handled via tape, and some actors yeah. will even send in a tape. Okay, here's my audition, and that's far more convenient for everybody. But it's unfortunate in a, in a few significant ways, which is it's you can't really tell unless you're sitting in a room with someone your real sense of them. You can get a pretty good sense. And then you also sometimes are prevented from working with them because it might just be a tape. Well, it is a tape. And so unless you give a ask for a callback and ask the casting director, could you give this note to the actor and ask them to try it with this in mind and this other adjustment, and then they might do it again. But you don't have that interactive thing, which is so critical because that's what happens when you're on the set making it. You want to get a sense of how you relate to the actor and how responsive the actor is to your ideas and how present they are, how, how well they listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's it's a lot more challenging that way. Yeah. I mean, you can't get a sense of like their chemistry the act- right. among the actors, but also your chemistry with them, just working with them. That's I mean, v- you know, you can, you can pick someone and go, they did great. And then you get them on set and they don't take adjustments well. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a great point. And that's, that's really the main reason I like to audition people in person, because it's true. You just, you just have an energetic sense of what your connection is with this human being. And I mean, what's significant about that to me is I want to know when I'm directing, I'm, I'm always trying to read each person I'm with because I have to connect to them in a way that I can affect them, that I can move them away from one kind of emotional state into possibly another or thinking about something a little differently you have to develop an immediate sense of how can I affect this other human being that I'm just just getting to know. Yeah. So so part of the challenge and opportunity in directing is to really connect to another soul, another person, and you're really uh, you're you're hoping you're going to be invited into their that you're going to be able to develop trust from them so that they'll you'll be invited into their process and that they'll be able to hear you people you know react to different cues differently and you can only really develop what that what those might be when you're literally relating to them yeah yeah that's true there has to be such a level of trust between the director and the actor too you know you, this the second a, the actor feels you know attacked or or something that I mean, they're just emotionally shut down, and you're just not going to be able to get a good performance. Yeah, working with actors, I think, is really the most important responsibility of a director. I mean, clearly, the visuals are terribly important, and there's all kinds of ways you communicate. But my feeling always is, if the actors aren't caring, aren't really understanding what's at stake, aren't really 
making real the emotional life that the character is supposed to have, then the story falls flat, no matter how brilliant the visuals or anything else are. And and it's such a vol- I mean, that's why I love the fact that I had three years of acting experience because yeah. it's like, and that's what I tell young directors uh, and any you know, any aspiring directors out there. I would say this to as well that it's a great idea to take an acting workshop yourself, not just how to direct actors, but how to act because only until you really face the challenge of inhabiting another character with a whole different life experience and a entirely different imaginary circumstances of their lives until you face that challenge of actually having to embody that and what it what it takes then you don't really understand what would be helpful what would be helpful from a director to hear yeah. you know it's not just like you know well, cry then just cry then yeah. just do that you know it's like yeah i mean even even experienced actors you know develop techniques where they might be able to give you that but it's not as good as if they really accessed the if they really feel it yeah. reality that leads to that. You don't want it to just be a technical performance. And so, you know, you really, you know, actors, I have such empathy for actors and such love really for them. It's not, you know, not, not all actors are the same. And there, there, you know, there are a lot of cliches about actors. A lot of, a lot of directors who haven't had experience with actors are terrified of them because they think of them as, you know, whatever you can they run the gamut and a lot of people there's a you know a lot of people are dismissive of actors as yeah. being what narcissistic or whatever and it's like that that to me so misses the mark i mean anybody can be narcissistic you don't have to be an actor to be narcissistic <laughs> exactly <Yeah. laughs> you know but what you're what it's a noble profession and that they're you're we're really asking them to carry emotions that most of us would rather not feel yeah that's really what you know, I think people tune in or go to the theater or, you know, to watch. They want to see people in extreme situations, what it would be like to go through something, either ter- or to feel something vicariously that you'd like to experience. But the bottom line is, unless it's truthful, it's not going to be meaningful for an audience. So the actor has to make, has to just be able to be a chameleon, and but really commit to all kinds of different uh, outside of their comfort zone. I mean, yeah, if, if, if the emotion isn't really there, then the audience isn't going to have that cathartic release. You know, exactly. Yeah, and and we all sense it. You know, when you see something that's not real. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's the big question. I'm always uh, the big thing. I'm always going for is is does it feel real? Is what I'm watching something that feels truly alive? And is it of interest to me? Is it is there is there a, a compelling enough? conflict going on drama going on dramatic question at issue and if if it if any of those things aren't credible and you you've lost it well and you have this great book directing great television you know what prompted you to to write this book you know i about i don't know six or seven years ago i started uh, along the way and my directing and uh young directors have asked to shadow me you know be with me while i prep and shoot because i wanted to learn and and i've done that with a lot of them and i but there were a certain point it became kind of there were like three or four in particular that were really sharp to me i thought they were really great and they'd all made short films that i really liked so i saw they had talent they all were of a certain age, like, you know, just approaching 30. So I knew they were serious. They'd been at this for a while. They all really wanted to break in. And I thought, you know, there's something 
that film school doesn't teach you and that it's like you're kind of just thrown into the deep end when you finally get hired, certainly for an episode of television, and you don't learn certain things. And I'd like to fill that gap. I'd like to kind of share my knowledge with you. So I started a little mentoring group and we would do things like uh, I'd, I'd come up with exercises. Like I remember I was directing the show House and uh, on the weekend, yeah, on the weekend, I asked the producer, "Do you mind if I bring some kids onto the young people onto the set?" And we we got on the weekend by ourselves, and I said, "Okay, guys, here's the script I'm shooting. Imagine this is uh, that you know tomorrow you're going to have to come in and have a rehearsal and show show everybody, you know, work with the actors, have a staging in mind. You know, you don't want to impose it. You want a rehearsal to kind of lead to it, but you need to have a staging in mind." And, and how you're going to shoot it in mind so that you can get this rehearsal accomplished quickly. So you know, take a scene and just figure out what you're going to, you know, how you would stage it without the actors being there. Just you know, imagine, pick a scene and go and then, and then I'll, then you can come and show me what you came up with and I'll ask you questions. It's like, you know, they might've taken a two page scene and they said, oh yeah, I figured something out. I said, okay, how many shots do you need for it? They say 17. I said, well, you're not going to have time for 17. So let's figure out, you know, how we, so things that you don't learn in film school. And, and I started deconstructing my process because a lot of it was just instinctive with me and I developed it over the years. And I and and I realized, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to reach more people than just the ones that actually come into my sphere of acquaintances and that I have time to help personally. So I wanted to write this book to kind of share some of the things you need to think about to direct effectively and what really and what directing really is, you know, how it is storytelling how every decision you make has to be influenced by story and not only that what's most important is how you connect and what how you can really care about the story you're telling because my feeling always is if i if i don't care about something i can't make someone else care about it right if i'm just directing an episode because you know it, it, it too many directors you know say they think if you say the lines and all that that you've told the story that's just the beginning the script is just kind of really just a skeleton. It's kind of a fleshless blueprint. I mean, there's a lot of thought to it, a lot implicit in it, but you have to realize it. You have to give that story meaning and you have to hold the vision of what, what's operating at the deeper levels, why this is an important story to tell. These are the kind of things I like to address and I wanted to share with people too that what it, how some of the shows that they've likely seen, what, I wanted to share my experience and how that, how a particular scene evolved into the, what it became, what, you know, because it doesn't, it's not written that way. It's not, there's no such thing as filming the script. You know, I, mm. it's, that would be photographing words on a page. That's not a scene. You have to flesh it out. You have to, you know, you help have to translate it into a visual medium. Yeah. 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 Trans, make it, make it come alive because it's not alive when it's just words on a page. It has to become embodied. It has to become staged and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. So I share stories about uh, certain creative problems I faced, and I try to do it not speaking from on high, but just trying to bring the audience with me. Like, hey, this, is, this was the challenge I faced here. And I, and I you know, go through several chapters where each one devoted to a different problem on one show in particular. And uh, that's one thing. And I talk about getting the performance and what I've my approach to working with actors and how I think you can be effective there. And another one I call the language of camera and, you know, how everything serves story. And so I'm hoping it's going to be useful, not just to aspiring directors or writers, 
but also just to fans of television because you know it's you, you see the finished product and it's it's sometimes unclear how I mean, it's probably always unclear how that thing came about that it was a series of choices made at each at each stage by many many people but supervised by the director and uh, all in service of telling a story mm-hmm. yeah, you also have a chapter on working with showrunners yes it's a really interesting topic because it's very unique yeah you don't have that in a movie <laughs> yeah yeah that's the that's probably one of the most significant differences between directing a feature and directing an episode of television and it's it's funny because you know it, 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 I, I say, you know, I, I think I start out that chapter, chapter maybe or one one of the chapters, but it's like directing an episode of television is sometimes feeling like you're doing the best job you can on on somebody else's show, <laughs> because it's like, you know, it's like it's the showrunner who generally the showrunners are kind of the stars of television, and that's and that's understandable. It's generally their vision that brought the thing into existence, and they are supervising. The whole the arc of the whole season and each each individual episode. So you are, it's interesting. Everybody kind of understands you're serving the vision of the showrunner, uh, as opposed to a feature film, and also different from a feature film where the director might be working in concert with a writer and and developing the material. It, you know, in television, the writers and the showrunners really, are, they're not developing it with you. They're giving you the developed script. So it's then your job to to run with it. But there's so many uh, ways you can still be enhance that and further that vision. It just can't be done independent of the writers. You can't take the story in a new direction without getting their permission, without like, you know, maybe you'll show them something that they really like. But you do you do have to still serve the vision of the showrunner, so that's that's kind of a big difference. Mm-hmm. Interesting how streaming is you know mixing up the models, right? It's mixing it up a little bit. There's yeah. You also don't have you know the feedback while the season's going to ever pivot in any new direction, you know, because it's sometimes I guess that's not always the yeah, case. You know, there's a, a real, real difference too. I've noticed like when I binge, I try binging a show that was created in the world of dropping it all at once and binging versus binging a show that was released weekly. And, and like, I don't know, there's a different flow to it, but also like, I remember like there are some shows that that was part of the fun and the excitement was everybody watched it one week at a time and you talked about it and you tried to, you threw out theories and you argued about it and da 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 da. And that was a lot of the fun. But now that you can, but if you go back and just try to binge it, you're like, you know, it's not as much fun as I remember it being. Let me understand. So you're saying the shows that were released weekly when you binge it, they don't flow as well. Is Sometimes that what you're they don't. Yeah. So I mean, some yeah. of them, of course, do. That, but that makes a lot of sense. And you know, you're. It was you're, a pre-binge oh, world. Yeah. Well, it, 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 there's good and there's pro and there's con. I think to that. I mean, there first is. of all, I really miss that too because, like, when I would direct The Sopranos or Six Feet Under or some of the great shows that were then aired weekly, it was so much fun because, you know, it'd be a water cooler show. They used to call it that, you know, every week. Oh, did you see it last night? And it was a big event and it was, it was fun to have been a part of it. And it was fun. I fun, I was, I enjoyed being a fan of shows like that, that I could wait for the next week. I mean, you still have to in some of the shows. Yeah. Um, And then, and then this other thing happened, but you're so right because 
because the, the shows evolve over time. People make mid-course corrections and and they or they respond. You know, it's funny, like my one of my first episodic uh, jobs, uh, actually, where I really cut my teeth was doing Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> I, I do that. The original. Yeah, yeah I, I grew I, up watching that. Yeah. And so it's so funny because it's like, you know, they started that show. I don't know if your audience will, is familiar with it or not. But, you know, it was like this this family from Minnesota yeah. comes to Beverly Hills. And it's like so they cast. You know, they had the cast, and and then you know, and 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 at the time, you you may recall, you know, Shannon Doherty was the was the girl from Minnesota, and Jenny Garth was the spoiled Beverly Hills. Girl. Uh-huh. Well, their their basic characters did not fit that. I mean, their basic the actors were not really necessarily suited for that. Shannon had her strengths, Jenny had her strengths, but they weren't really the types that they were written for. So as the show was evolving they they rewrite it so the roles became almost totally reversed yeah you know it's like they, they make a, and then and then the fans chime in they know some or even like like on homeland i can think of this example uh you know damian lewis's character in homeland the first season for those of you who don't know the show you know he is a u.s marine who's held in captivity and it turns out he's a going to be a suicide bomber for al-qaeda and so the story kind of would dictate he should not be around after the first season, after he, you know, wears a bomb and straps it onto himself. And, yeah. You know, he's 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 not, you know, but such chemistry existed between, you know, Claire Danes and Damian Lewis. The fans loved them together. So Showtime said, no, 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 let's keep them together. <laughs> so they kept Damian around for like three seasons, defying all possible, you know, plausibility. So, you know, it's like things change and shift. Whereas, you know, uh, and and so I can see and also and, you know, so I can see how going back and looking at shows made in that way, there would be more of a disjointed feeling because there, there was room to shift. The other thing, though, that's on the downside of uh, making it all at once is that you don't get any feedback right. and you also don't even get the writers don't even get the feedback of what they have, who the actors are, because you're not going to see a cut of a show really a final cut for something until maybe the third or fourth episode is filming before you see the first one Mm -hmm. and, and the ship has sailed, you know, it's like, you know, you may see after the first episode, it might be very clear. There's no chemistry between two characters that are supposed to dominate the, you know, have this big love relationship. And when they finally see the final cut for the first episode, they've already committed, you know, three other episodes have been filmed. They're in various forms of being finished. And, uh, so anyway, so you don't you don't get opportunities to to mid course correct nearly as easily. Yeah, we were just talking about you know some talking about some of the last good water cooler TV shows, and like I know somebody who only just recently watched Lost, and they're like, yeah, but it's not. I don't. I didn't quite love it. Like everybody, I remember everybody everybody being so gaga and crazy over it. I'm like, well, yeah, but I mean. It built every week over the course of a few years, and right. everybody was going, making themselves nuts trying to figure it out. You guys watched it in two weeks, you know? I mean, it's... Yeah. Right, right. Can't make any right. fan theories it, it, or anything like right. that. Right, I mean, it, it, it's sort of like a participatory event, you know? <laughs> I mean, without audience participation, sometimes it's not as much fun. And in Lost, which I also was fortunate to direct, you know, it's like... 
there was definitely responsiveness from the writers to what they saw the fans were interested in. Mm -hmm. And then they'd write an episode about that. Like I I did in the first season, the first backstory for Hurley, the character Hurley. Yeah, I loved Hurley. Like like the 17th episode or something. They'd done backstories for everybody and they hadn't done Hurley, but Hurley just captivated everybody. I was like, oh, you know, Jorge Garcia is so great, you know. Everybody loved Hurley. He was like everybody's favorite. (laughs) The episode... And the last season I directed was called Everybody Loves Hugo. Yeah. <laughs> that was his name before. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so it's funny. And, you know, one other thing I just wanted to say, too, that I've heard writers lament is, you know, the whole thing about making pilots was always and continues to be, but uh, it was always kind of this, it seems like so wasteful because they, you know, networks would commission like, I don't know, a hundred pilots yeah. and maybe five of them would go to series, you know, well, they might spend, you know, they would definitely spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on all these different pilots, you know, and they'd go out and get made and then they say, well, are any of them any good? Okay. Well, we like these amounts. So we'll, we'll take these to series. And the financial remedy to that was they, at some point they said, well, we're not going to do that. We're just going to say this, show by J.J. Abrams that they'll get a good pedigree. They'll get good people and they'll say, "Okay, we're just going to go straight to series. So you just start you just a pilot will just be episode one. And we're committed to making, you know, 22 episodes or 12 episodes. And the problem with that is you don't get to again, you don't have any mid-course corrections. Like when you when you do a pilot, you'd make the pilot and you'd shut down for months until it was finished, until everybody figured out if it's going to go. But Often producers would look at the pilot and say, "Well, this char- this actor isn't very good. We should recast this character, yeah. or we should do make this change, or we should reshoot four four of these scenes, add a little subplot about this." You know, that's all gone now because yeah. they have to, the ship that's, starts to sail. Yeah, right yeah. like I remember, I was telling Mark, so I was like, "Quick, uh, quick trivia: Everybody thinks there's two Quintons on Grace Under Fire. There's three. There's a different <laughs> little boy for the pilot." little blonde haired kid with glasses, you know, exactly. and it was, and it, it had a very different feel to it. And I was just watching, I saw the pilot of the nanny. The whole house is flipped. The, exactly. the, the front doors on the other side of the place and the stairs are on the other side of the house. You know, I mean, the you know whole set's different. You know why that's probably the case is because when they make a pilot, they don't know if it's going to series. So they'll look for a practical, a real location. Ah. So you'll go out and they'll say, okay, let's find a house. And uh, and they'll take that house and they'll shoot the pilot and they say if it goes to series we're going to build the location yeah build a set and then when yeah. it goes to series they think well that was really awkward having that window there <laughs> by the floor. or there was no windows on the wall we need light coming in so they'll redesign it and subtly they'll try to you know but that's probably why that happened yeah um, and you know nowadays the pilot's episode yeah the first episode just sort of seamlessly goes in but it used to be the pilot was just at times sometimes even tonally quite different oh that's so true i mean if you look at some of the classic shows and you look at the pilot and you think wow this has nothing to do with what i like about the show <laughs> yeah it's like how did and they get that out of that yeah yeah, but the audience forgot about it because it's, you know, they started to get interested like in episode two or three or four. Right. If the show didn't get canceled before. <laughs> yeah. I feel like... I uh, remember... Might, might be wrong, but I think Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I think they recast someone and reshot the pilot. Or at least yeah, the I think so. Oh, well, and, and, like if you've ever watched the, the, the beginning of Gunsmoke, like I'm talking 
early first season. James Arnest, Gunsmoke? Yeah. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, first of all, it was so cool is they didn't know that Clint Eastwood was going to do that intro at the beginning. And and it aired and the whole cast was at somebody's house watching it. And they started I screaming. Oh my God. He did it. He did a... a he did a whole intro going, I got my good friend here, James Arness, is going to bring you this show. And it's, it's gritty and it's raw. And I think you're going to like it. It gets my seal of approval kind of thing, which was really was, cool. He was rowdy, yeah, he was Rowdy Yates on, on his show. Um, what was the name of his show? No, this was, uh, I'm sorry, this was John Wayne that, that did this. Oh, John so, Wayne. Oh, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. This is John Wayne. And, oh, and he was hilarious. like, and this is my buddy, um, James Arness. And they were so excited. But even beyond that, Miss Kitty, you know, Miss Kitty is this sort of like, I'm a worldly woman and nothing's going to surprise me. And da, 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 da. Well, I cracked up this one time because she's in the saloon, you know, the Long Branch and in walks Matt. And she just waves and is like, hi, Matt. Like, she's like, this little girl's got a crush on him. (laughs) <laughs> which is not Miss Kitty, right? Like right. nobody right. thinks of Miss Kitty this way. Yeah. And well, um, what happens a lot is it's like they cast, they cast people and then they don't know what they've got and they see, oh my God, you know, Miss Kitty would be great as this other way that she then became. Oh, and, and Doc, he's always like real gruff and curmudgeon but he was like almost mean at, in the, like the pilot, you know, like <laughs> he wasn't likable curmudgeon He was just like yeah. mean. You know, and and probably, that was because of the the yeah the, the, the radio the not having found his stride. You know, it's like he played probably a cliche at the first. Okay, these lines read a certain way. I'll just go with that. Yeah, and then he made it more real. Yeah, I saw all well, kinds of Well, and I think they were trying to make it so much like the radio show. Um, oh. The radio show, the doc was like this weird crazy maniacal guy who liked cutting on bodies <laughs> like it was really bizarre he a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm so sorry i didn't mean to misspeak it was uh john wayne did the the intro yeah. the duke yeah. and i and i forgot the title of uh clint Eastwood's show was rawhide rawhide yeah he played, yeah, he played uh, rowdy yeah, yates yeah, rowdy yates that was how he started and then that he got was hired. yeah that was his first yeah and sergio leone then brought him over to spain to make all the spaghetti westerns and that was his yeah, he didn't start getting big until after he left the country. Right, right. <laughs> Which is so wild. <laughs> Talking about water cooler shows, one show that we liked that was definitely a water cooler show when it was out was Alias. Yes. Oh, That's the one that we were talking about. We were like, that was one of the last that we could remember, like, kind of of the, one of the last of the water cooler shows. That, for Game of Thrones, of course. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't count Game of Thrones. I don't like that one. Uh, that was so much fun. I'll tell you one story about that. It was, uh, you know, that was my first introduction to J.J. Abrams, who's just so creative and inventive. And and I, I I don't know which episode it was I did the first season. It was maybe the sixth episode or something like that. And oh yeah, and did you do you remember too? Bradley Cooper got was in that. He yeah. Got his, yeah. And uh, but you know the plot was so complicated and interesting and like oh my god, what's going on? And I remember. <laughs> Like on the sixth episode or something, uh, I, I happened to hear from JJ what he what he the, what was going to be the climax of the season, and that in those days it was like twenty four episodes or yeah. twenty two episodes, and it was like oh, in the end of the season, he's going to Cindy Bristow is going to find out that you know her mother's alive or something like that. I mean, I forget what it was, and I says, oh my god, that's going to be so great, and he says, yeah, I think it's really going to be great, and then. 
the script comes out for the next episode and I saw they had moved it up to the next episode. <gasps> it wasn't going to wait 24 hours. Oh my gosh. <laughs> he, idea. he just said, oh, let's make that happen. You know, and it's like, that. and he did the same thing with Lost. It's like, he is so bold in his, and trusting, he loves the challenge of having to figure things out with a deadline. And it's like, I was thinking, where do you go from there? If you, if you reveal the end of the season, like, if you're pulling that up to episode seven or eight, you know, you got to think of all this more plot to go from eight to 22. Yeah. But he loved that challenge. I mean, the image I always had of JJ was he'd, he'd always be sawing off the branch he was sitting on. He'd be sitting <laughs> on the tree, sawing it off. And it's like, he'll trust that before the branch hits the ground, he'll figure out something else. And, yeah. was, and the same thing on Lost, you know, he directed the pilot of Lost. And he's been documented as saying, we didn't know what any of this stuff meant. We just threw in, I mean, a snowman or a, well, what was it, the white bear? The, bear yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. we'll just throw in anything. And they didn't feel any obligation or, or need to figure it all out because they, they loved just the adventurous challenge of just figuring it out retroactively. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, they may have paid a price because the last episode, I'm not sure it was fully satisfying because it's like, how do you tie together all these strings when you've just been willing to go anywhere? You know? right. so. It's true. I know we were talking a little bit, I think before we start recording about challenges and filming, uh, like with some of the stuff we face with, with Indy and, and such and uh, ticks came up and chiggers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we filmed one time, we started out with a snowstorm. At one point during filming, we had a dust storm. We had thunderstorm with tornadoes. We ended up in a massive, like, tick nest. Um, Mark's ended up getting, like, a staph infection from the tick bites. Oh, God. Could you keep filming during any of that? We them? kept filming <laughs> during oh, yeah, all yeah, of, of it. Yeah, you have to on an indie, right? I you mean, know, we filmed out. during every little bit of it. And, <laughs> I mean, it. what else happened? It was snow, storms, tornadoes, dust storm, ticks. I mean, yeah, man, it was fun. biblical. It, 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 we finally were like, if a plague happens, it's our fault. You know, thankfully this was years before what, the. What was the weather? What was the weather that was supposed to be in the story? Consistent. <laughs> I like that answer. <laughs> we were hoping for consistent. It was supposed to be warm. It was not supposed to be. Uh, well, no, and no then, dust storms well, and then like at one point, it, it, the heat index was over a hundred, and. Yeah. Um, I know so I went just down to like a clarify. This was one project, but it was spread out over a few weekends. So, yeah, a, a few weekends, uh, but unfortunately, where we live, a few was, weekends it can go from snow to a hundred seven degrees. Yeah. It didn't happen hey, all in the same. You, I'll tell week. you an alias story because uh -huh. I remember there was one episode of Alias I did that involved a, a hostage exchange in, a, in the Mexican desert, and so we're in Los Angeles, and so we had we went up to a place called. I think it's called Mono Lake, but it's where they film all those car commercials where you see the parched earth. It's oh, yeah. like, you know, cracks and the, the, these cars are going. It's like a, a barren floor and then there's mountains ringing it in the distance and they do these spin outs of cars all the time and everything. So we went up to that place and it was 121. Oh. <laughs> we had a whole crew there and we had tents and everything else. But yeah, weather, it's something people don't probably appreciate how difficult production can be because... and trying to make your actors look like they're not melting is oh such God. a hard thing to do <laughs> yeah. Yeah. because 
I mean, yeah. there's no way the makeup just starts to fall. <laughs> right, right. I mean, there's it, great comedy in a lot of that too, you know, and especially when you watch low budget shows and they just had to soldier on and you just, you know, but if the story's good enough, people will buy it. You know, that's the other thing that's really interesting is people want, they, we all crave stories. We're narrative creatures. You know, we, we need stories. We want stories. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's helpful to remember that, you know, you can get away with a lot because an audience wants to believe the story. Yeah. They want, you know, I mean, you really see that on stage. When you think about what a stage play is, it's like there's this constant communication with the audience. Like, are you still with me? I know this is ridiculous. I'm saying I'm in a castle in France and you're just looking at this black backdrop and I'm here, and I'm, but I'm going to pretend it's there. Are you still, are you buying this? And there's this kind of unspoken, yeah, 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 I'm with you. Good. I'm imagining that, you know, and to some degree, to, film has a different expectation for realism, but still we are narrative creatures. We love stories. We'll, we'll, we want to pretend, we, you know, the audience participates in it in, in a much greater extent than, than is generally recognized. And, and that's how you can get away with a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Well, you have some series is they're more special effects or fight choreography heavy, like sure. like sure. you've done Buffy, Boys, Alias, some sure. True Blood, uh, Homeland. Some of the biggest stuff I did was uh, in Homeland. I did an episode called Thirteen Hours in Islam about the taking of the Pakistani embassy by terrorists. Oh, wow, mm. that was like really heavy action. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's a uh, it's a real interesting challenge. Well, for example, in that example, like how much work, how much prep work did you have to do? Oh, tremendous, tremendous. It's like, well, you have to because, you know, the thing is, I'll tell you a little trade secret. Nobody really gets hurt in any of these things. <laughs> if you're doing it right. <laughs> yeah. and, and every explosion is actually really carefully planned. Oh, yeah. So, so nobody's going to get hurt. So like in that episode of Homeland, I mean, there were just, it was nonstop action, but one one sequence in particular is coming to mind since you asked it, is like there were these hostages and there was a penetrate into the embassy and there's these marble floors and floor to ceiling windows. And this terrorist has all these em employees lined up and he's executing them one in a row, one by one until, you know, Rupert Friend, the actor, you know, comes in and there's a massive shootout with machine guns and everything else. So, you know, I was prepping this thing. I realized, okay, uh, you can do bullet hits and all that, but these windows have to shatter. I mean, they're floor to ceiling windows. Mm. It's like how many rounds of ammunition can be fired in this one hallway without <laughs> most of these windows getting blown out? And we did, we couldn't afford to blow out all of them, you know. So we had to really pick out. I mean, it was a big prep thing. First of all, I had to kind of stage it in my mind. But this is before you get the actors on and say, what do you feel like doing? Television, you really, and in features, you really need to have a staging in mind. And the staging has to be intelligent so that the actors are assisted in their performance by how they're being asked to move because the movement leads to feeling and the staging and one rule of staging I always liked or, or hint about it is that if it should try to stage it so that if you turn down the sound and you just watched the behavior, you'd still know what the mm -hmm. scene's about. Mm -hmm. and, and so you try to do things that will facilitate that. And it also helps the actors reach those emotions because what you do physically actually does affect your emotional state as well. Mm -hmm. So I have to figure all that stuff out and how this, 
this person has to get killed at this point in the action and this has to happen. And then you pick it and we picked out, you know, okay, this like four or five huge floor to ceiling uh, window panes had to be shattered. And, and that's something that has to be rigged is because it's another clue. They don't really firing a bullet into it. And uh, <laughs> so we had to work, we had to work all that out. And then the, you know, and then it has to be budgeted how much for, you know, we need at least three takes we had three shots at it. And then what's the downtime for replacing that whole pane of glass for take two, you know, all those kind of things. It's, it's really an interesting puzzle. I'm kind of wondering how different it is staging and directing um, something like that that's very intense but more reality-based action and fighting versus the kind of fighting and action you'd have in, say, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or yeah, Adventures well, of Briscoe County yeah, Jr. or, or, or Lois and Clark, you know. Right, or heroes or things where they're yeah. super... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, or, or the boys. Yeah, it's like... So in those kind of things, you, you often do a lot of wire work, you know, so that there's flying bodies. It's like someone might get ratcheted, like have a rig on their torso that's covered by their wardrobe. So when they get hit by a super power person, you know, they get flung back, you know, 40 feet against a wall, you know. So you got that's like, OK, we're going to, you know, rig a pulley and then you digitally erase the wire behind them. So it's like, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a that's a big. Ch- I mean, any kind of fight is is an interesting challenge, but when you get into the realm of Buffy or or heroes or the boys or or the or the Marvel universe, you know, you have to do things that aren't physically possible to do because that's what makes them superheroes that they can do <laughs> physically yeah. possible to do. So there's all kinds of tricks and all that, but even. Even on things that, as we're calling reality based, there are a lot of difficult things. To, like I did, there's a show called Snowfall, which is about bringing crack cocaine into East L, into South Central Los Angeles in the 80s. John Singleton was the last thing he developed before he sadly passed away. Mm-hmm. But I had a, a sequence and I did the first episode of season three, and and one of the gags on that was a cop is kind of watches a drug buy happen. Uh, with a stopped car in the middle of the street and he approaches and this junkie is trying to buy this young woman who's really strung out on crack is trying to get her get buy some crack the junkie the the dealer sees the cop and tears off in the car with the junkie halfway in the car like she's reaching in so her lower torso is out the window as this car is like flying by down the street well, you know, that took a lot of that, you know, how do we do that? We had, you know, lengthy conversations with the stunt coordinator and now we're going to film it and, and to anchor her in a sunway, put a platform for when we're inside the car, have a platform below her so that when she, and then she has to fly off the car and roll into a stop. <laughs> things that, you know, they're, they're, it's an exciting stunt because it's life-threatening. Right. But you can't have, you can't shoot something in a way that's life-threatening. So it just takes a lot of, uh, there are a lot of smart people and a lot of, uh, there's so much talent in working films. I mean, at every level. I mean, there's a lot of competition for these jobs, I know. And the people who succeed at them really, really have reached a level of yeah. expertise and competence that's really impressive. I got to ask just because my own personal, how much I love, um, I love all the, the genre shows, um, but I also do love Westerns. <laughs> um, yeah. said that you had uh, directed some young writers in Dr. Quinn. 
Um, no, yeah. What, Dr. Quinn, medicine done. woman. Yeah. What, um, what was, was there anything different as it, that, that you approach as a director for something set for in a different time period in Westerns? Yeah. Is there oh, just anything? You know, first of all, just generally you have to approach, I have to approach every show as its own unique thing. So every show is different in that they all have their own sensibility. Like I just did a show, um, Penny Dreadful City of Angels. Did yes, you guys that was goodness. so good. I thought it was really great. I was so sad it didn't make it, but it was, you know, set in 1938 Los Angeles. Oh, and, it was and, wonderful. Yeah, I thought so too. And it was very heightened. So even the acting, you know, I've written this book, as you've mentioned, and I, I reference a lot of shows in it. And so I'm putting together clips to show when I, when I talk about the book. And I've, I've done talks anyway before the book about my process and all that. And I bring these clips along and I was watching clips from a lot of other shows, you know, that are more, much more realistic. And the acting is is very realistic and, mm-hmm. and you know, recognize it. And I put in something from Penny, uh, Penny Dreadful and it's so heightened. It's just so different. It's like it's it's like melodramatic, right. but it works because that's the that was kind of the feeling for the show. The so whole thing's so stylized. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, so you, yeah. And Westerns are, have their own style too. I've done several, I've done, I did Deadwood also. I don't know if that Ooh. was one, you but uh, I'm trying to think of the last Western I did. It probably, I don't recall, but yeah, but uh, yeah, there's just a different, there's just, I mean, yeah, you can't have, I mean, the language is different. It's, it's, uh, uh, the pace is different. It's like you're, you're entering another time. Like nowadays, you know, we're in such a ADD culture and everything. Everything is just fast, 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 yeah. fast. Mm-hmm. That's that you wouldn't do that in in, in a western. And it's like, mm-hmm. and I love that. I love silences. I love pregnant moments. You know, we we miss those so much in yes. some time in the in the shows now that are you know representing what it's like in present day. I, I remember them talking about young writers, someone saying about, you know, they wanted it kind of dirty and gritty. They're like, well, we get the clothes and then we like, you know, kind of throw it on the ground and we step on it and we get a bunch of dirt on it. And then we have a horse right across, <laughs> run across it a couple of times. And then it's almost good enough to wear. <laughs> but I loved on that Penny Dreadful, the city of angels. Yeah. The, talking about the, well, the, the heightened in the style. And then that one actress, uh, I can't remember her name now, that played like multiple parts. Like, she oh, was, yes. yeah, yeah. Blanking on her name too. British actress. She's brilliant. Yeah. She was, yeah. Oh, and but I played, was thinking of the, the music yeah. and the dancing and everything that was on oh, that yeah. was just incredible. I, oh my God. I did the second to last episode, <gasps> which is the big thing when everybody meets at the dance the hall. The sing, and, sing, sing. That was my yeah, favorite sing, one. Sing, direct, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the most, that was the most fun and challenging of that. And, the, and there were like, a hundred paid dancers. Every all that dance was was rehearsed for two weeks in advance, so that like you know scenes when they come in and the, and you and we had a techno crane going out over the whole dance floor and circling back and and all these incredible moves and everything. Oh, you've else. got to tell us end. everything about filming this because that was <laughs> yeah. honest to God. That was I have the music running in my head right now, and oh, it was my I absolute favorite episode. How- I can't tell you how happy I am that you even knew the title of the episode and everything. Yeah, I, I was so this visually that was one of the most exciting things I ever did. I think it was really, really a fun, fun opportunity. And uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I'll tell you anything you want to know. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, you started with uh, how two weeks. I was wondering, like, 
how did you go? Because they all meet there at the dance club. And this is where it all starts to go, go down, you know, <laughs> like. Uh, well, it was such a great. Um, yeah, it, it was it was such a great episode because what it what it did was, I mean, it, it, the whole season was tracking kind of this uh, Chicano family with, uh, I think it's four children and they all have, they're all distinct. And one, of course, is a cop and he's the only Chicano cop in the, in the LAPD in 1938. And he's, he's having to suck it up all the prejudice within the department, but he's regarded as a traitor by his younger brother, who's a Pachuco. And then another brother who's a labor organizer, organizer, and then a sister who's kind of uh, a free spirit. And then she discovers spirituality through this, uh, television evangelist yeah. so and, and then the mother who's the housekeeper who's kept everybody together she's and trying they, to keep them all the together story, and they're all just and, like yeah, yeah. Oh. and at this point in the story the the tensions have really been driven mainly by the uh the supernatural character why yeah. can't we remember her name she's such a great actor somebody should look it up on imdb the chameleon chick in this yeah, where she she's 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 everybody's like she's just tempting everybody with what you know she just keeps a chameleon in each of their lives which whatever they need she needs to do to well, tempt but, each one natalie right. dormer natalie dormer right 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 and well that's even interesting because it's like like humanity is just considered like it, it's it's it is like biblical it's like Natalie Dormer has a sister God. There's two gods yeah. kind of competing for the soul of man. Like, what is man? It's kind of like Lucifer. And it's like, what, what are men capable of? And what is humanity capable of? And one has an optimistic view. One has a pessimistic view. And Natalie Dormer has the pessimistic view. Yeah. And she's going to prove to her sister that human beings are not capable of noble activity. It kind of reminds always... me of the book of Job where they have the, exactly. and, yeah, and very much. yeah, the, the up in the, in the heavens and it's God and the adversary. And basically yes. the book of Job is a bet. Yahweh yes. and the yes. adversary are the, betting. If we do this, what's going to happen in this story? Right. Yeah. Right. So, so in, in this episode, it's like things are really threatening to blow apart and at the end of the episode, it seems like they've come together until the lynching happens of the young Latino activist, Chicano activist, and they're dancing, thinking they've all come together finally as a family. And you know, at the end, it's the next episode, it's all going to blow apart when the news comes out. Yeah. But that was that was one of those challenging shows I've ever directed because there was like 15 pages of the family kind of in this dance hall sitting around a tiny table yeah. with eight characters sitting around the table <laughs> <It was a laughs> lot. talking all these conflicts getting addressed and resolved and threatening to blow up all these tense moments meanwhile a hundred people are dancing around it and then it ends with a huge ensemble dance of the family coming together which you want to keep exciting so it was really fun it was really fun to <laughs> i do. can't believe you directed my favorite episode that is so <laughs> awesome <laughs> I should have known that before, but I didn't get a chance to look and see That's which one day. you did. You made my day. That was fantastic. <laughs> and well, I you just made mine. That the show got, you know, didn't get picked up. And I think if the, well, I don't know, if the pandemic hadn't happened, who knows, it might have been picked up. But it's it was true. a very expensive show. And uh, Oh, you know. and, and the ending of it just gets you right in the heart, too, you know, when you yeah, realize when the, the plans that, that's happening. It's like, why all this happened? And then, like, this is what's happening, too our home yeah. and and what's amazing oh. too is it was all apart from the supernatural element 
it's all based in historical fact. I mean, the mm-hmm. American Nazi Party was actually quite big in in the th- mid thirties, yeah. and so that was those those were characters in the story, and and the freeways were the building of the freeways were uh, a case of social engineering, you know, mm-hmm. trying to isolate the the poor communities and all these things. It was really really an interesting study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was it was really very meaningful show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it should have gotten second season. Yeah, it should. But it, I tell you what, it, even the just one season, it's a, it's a great work of art. And the way it ended was just anyone who watches it, it's just going to be, it yeah. stays with you. <laughs> yeah, good. Evidently, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I get excited. What are you guys doing? Are you developing another independent film to make or what? Uh, not right this second. I'm, I am. Novels, actually. Yeah, I'm working on novels oh. right now. Got a novel coming out very soon. Um first in a series and then um i putting together an anthology with 20 other authors and we're doing that too this year i'm yeah. also of course i can't i got a blend of two right so i'm working on a tv pilot based on the the series and stuff yeah. too so yeah. marks and i are co- doing some co-writing on the anthology and um some plans to do some co-writing for some novels in the future and right now i'm more of a beta reader slash editor. <laughs> editor, but yeah. I do have a, a horror short film that I co-produced and did sound for that. Oh, yeah. That's almost, it's been in post-production for a little while. I forgot I about that. Started out, I started out, my first professional job was Silver Bullet, and that was a horror film. I don't know if you happened to see that, but that was I, I did, Stephen I did. King. Yeah. That was... Uh, Werewolf. That was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Now was I gotta go it, Was that... that? Was that released in theaters or was that? A- oh yeah, okay. Time. That I was, couldn't remember. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was a Paramount movie, and it you know it did, did decently well. Yeah, so that was. I gotta check that one out. I've well, I was probably too it. young to really supposed to be watching it, so I probably watched television. <laughs> I can promise you, I was not allowed to watch that. <laughs> I'm just saying. My mom's. You know, big- Julie, I think it holds up pretty well. I mean, at the time I made it, I was thinking, oh god, it doesn't work because because it was a Stephen King movie and. I read the script. He was great, by the way. Stephen King was great. But Dino De Laurentiis really wanted it to be a hard R, you know, like, you know, and the, you know, like you associate with Stephen King. But the script was this great kid's adventure, this this boy in a wheelchair. And he had this really fun uncle played by Gary Busey, who at the time was very coherent and a brilliant yeah. actor. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and I just wanted it to be I wanted to make it like as a PG-13 because I, I just thought it could be a great kid's adventure, which I did. But then he, the Dino kept saying, "No, you got to have these gratuitous, violent, really violent scenes." So it it is a weird melange of, you know, some really brutal stuff and and this kids' adventure. So <laughs> it, it's a little weird. I was, you know, but but even now, it's I think it I think it's kind of fun. I think. It well, I just cover my eyes during the really brutal stuff, and then Marks tells me when I can open them again. <laughs> well, I, so the brutal stuff is just kind of stylized, and the the, the 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 worst part about the brutal stuff, I thought, was that it always was just these two dimensional characters getting offed. It was kind of very you're not really very. <laughs> so, but it was it was fun to do. Yeah, I'll have to find it. And yeah, we got to watch that. I'm sure it's streaming somewhere. Let's see where <laughs> I can find that at. I've, I've liked a few. I'm not yeah. like a huge Stephen King fan, but I've liked a few. Like I, I, I liked the original It miniseries. I watched a few minutes of the new movie, and I, I'm out. Nope. 
<laughs> too creepy for her. Yeah. It was, it was, it was gross. It was too gross. Some of his best stuff I don't think is his horror. I mean, it's like Shawshank Redemption and yeah. and what was the one, you know, like the four boys on the railroad. Stand by me. Stand by me. Stand by me, yeah. You know, I also worked on, they, there was a, well, there was a lot of new TV series of his, but uh, Castle Rock I worked on. That was oh, one that came. Oh, yeah, we watched that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's just so prolific. It's uh, amazing. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder sure if he is. sleeps. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Although you've got quite a resume. I'm wondering if you sleep too, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. I sleep. I sleep plenty. <laughs> <laughs> Especially considering how much prep time it takes to get something out. Yeah, it's fast. It's really fast. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any other TV projects coming up that you're directing that you can? Well, I've been working this season on Billions. Uh, it's a Showtime show, and uh, I'm, I'm oh, doing. I'm not familiar with those. that one. It, it's uh, it's hedge fund guys and you know big cast, uh, Damian Lewis and Paul Giamatti and oh, wow. some other. But it's uh, it's very far from fantasy and that kind of stuff. And science fiction. I don't know. Uh, Get a billions of dollars. I don't know. That sounds pretty far fetched to me. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm gonna I'm gonna spend some time trying to promote this book. Awesome. Yeah, yeah it's a good book. I, I appreciate any book that's got a lot of stories in it. I think that's the best way to learn uh, how to how to actually do it. Yeah, <laughs> I can. Or, or when he is. gets a book like this, I can tell if it's a, a really good book. Cause you know, he, if he either skims it and reads it, or in this case, he's like consuming it. I'm like, okay, that must be a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? It's a ghost again to that thing about we're creatures of story. We love stories and that's, and I love stories. And, and that's really all I wanted to write was to illustrate things by telling stories about it. Not that this is my, this is the story of what, happened here as opposed to just giving a list of what you do to direct because i don't because i you know really all it is any creative thing you really just have to get to know yourself consult yourself i mean to me i guess one through line for the book for me is it's like the fundamental director question when you're directing is how does this make me feel you know whenever i'm watching anything how do i feel about that it's like you just constantly have to consult your own instinctive response to whatever it is, an actor's performance or a camera angle that's proposed. It's like you're, you're your own barometer and it's not just a mental exercise. It's, you know, you have to really be willing to really experience your own feelings and that informs, informs you of which, where you want to go. Awesome. And the stories, I think, help with that. See, know, that so. acting paid off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. No, I... I, I it was it was it was great. In fact, it's funny. Somebody was talking to me about. It. He says, "You know, I look at your resume, and it, it doesn't look like a director's. It looks it's so varied. It looks like an actor's resume." <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's very true because I really like going into new worlds and new sensibilities, so that I can then immerse myself in it, so that I can make it mine, and then I've grown from that. It's like I really love the challenge of of widening my own way of, of, you know, deepening my own sensibility and, and understanding something I didn't understand before. And that's, so that's true. That kind of is a hallmark for why I, it's, I'm not one of those guys who is, feels like I have to be the auteur. I have to just kind of create everything. I really like, I'm really drawn to something that compels me. And wow, that's a great show. I'd like to like the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I don't know if you guys watched that one, but it's so stylized and fun. It's one we've been really, one, we've been meaning to check out. We haven't gotten yeah, a chance to. Yeah, it's like yet. I just want to go. Do, I want to get in there and see 
because I know to direct it, I have to really make it mine. And it's like, yeah. so that's kind of the fun of doing a, different things. That's why I like to do comedy and drama and all that. It's like, it's all, it's all enriching to me. Yeah. That's, that's me. Yeah. Like True Blood, that was a pretty wild one too. Oh, yeah. That was very wild. I had worked on Alan Ball who created that created Six Feet Under, which I was one of my favorite shows ever. And and then he created this this thing which was just based on a series of novels mm-hmm. you guys probably Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, that was wild. That was uh that was a lot of fun. <laughs> I I still remember the the craziness with the I can't remember which season it was with the main ad. It was like, I can't believe this is happening. This is yeah, just so crazy. It, it, like I can't believe yeah. this is all happening. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then when you, when you're working on it, you have to find a way to believe, you have to make it believable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's what's fun. Every so often we'll watch something and one of us will start chuckling and we're like, I wonder what's going through the actors or the director's <laughs> mind right now when they're to try to yeah. do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of fun times on sets where people are doing weird things and then they'll, you'll get the take and then you cut or something and people just say, I can't believe I went to acting school to do this or something. <laughs> <laughs> and there's you know like we like to watch you know more genre stuff it's like well eventually like you know you're gonna do this and then there's gonna be like smoke coming out of your mouth and then there's gonna be like you know this and that and then something shooting out of your hands you know and it's like okay go ahead make that look real you know? <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's pretty wonderful when the imagination can just go wherever it wants and you know yeah it's, it's, so we're wild. So before we go, you know, where can our listeners, uh, I don't know if you have a website or not, but if you do, where can they find you yeah, or I find I have a website. It's just danattias.com, D-A-N-A-T-T-I-A-S.com. And if you go on it, actually, there's a the beginning of it is where you can get my book. And then there's a lot of, you know, uh, what? I mean, little clips from stuff I've done and all that. So that's that's there. Thanks for asking. And it's also published by MWP Press, so you can go to mwp.com or Amazon. Yeah, and it's called Directing Great Television Inside TV's New Golden Age. Right. That's it. I just want to make sure we got that in there. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I, this has been a blast. You guys are great. I really appreciate it. I've had a lot, lot of fun. Well, thank you. I can't tell you how much fun this has been for us. It's just been really great. My name is Linda Sager. I've been a script consultant. I'm an author of 10 books on screenwriting. Our newest is You Talking to Me, How to Write Great Dialogue. And you're listening to Genretainment. Well, thanks for the great conversation, Dan. And check out the show notes for links that we mentioned in the interview. Before we go, we want to give a shout out to the full band duo McCarty, who created our new theme music for Genretainment. You can find links to their YouTube channel in the show notes. Well, that's it for today's Genretainment. Until Until next next time. Ben Monkey.